0: He, <laughs> the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to suspense, crime, and horror stories from the golden age of radio. I'm Eric.
1: I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. We love mysterious old-time radio stories, but
2: do they stand the test of time? That's what we're here to find out. Today we return to the listener library for a suggestion from our mysterious listener, Paul. Paul.
0: Paul writes, Hi, Morals. Thanks for playing my requested radio show, SOS, a few weeks ago. I really enjoyed hearing your take on it. I discovered your podcast around the end of last year, and I've been enjoying running through the whole series in the past few months. Paul goes on to make many excellent recommendations, including the episode we're listening to today, The Ring of Thoth, from Escape.
1: From its debut in 1947 to its final broadcast in 1954, Escape produced 230 episodes of thrilling, intelligent escapism. The program's stated mission was to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. No locale was too exotic, no adventure too dangerous, no escape too narrow. In 1947, Radio Life magazine praised the quality of escape scripts, declaring, These stories all possess many times the reality that most radio writing conveys. The Ring
2: of Thoth was adapted by Les Crutchfield from the story of the same name by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. The story was first published in the January 1890 issue of the Cornhill Magazine and reprinted later that year in the short story collection The Captain of the Polestar and Other Tales. Although Doyle is best remembered as the creator of Sherlock Holmes, his literary efforts went far beyond detective fiction. He published 24 novels in his life and hundreds of short stories in genres as diverse as history, fantasy, adventure, romance, science fiction, and horror.
0: The long shadow cast by Sherlock Holmes often obscures Doyle's contributions to other genres, particularly in the area of horror. His 1913 story, The Horror of the Heights, foreshadows the cosmic horror of Lovecraft years before the first Cthulhu story was published. The Captain of the Star* from 1833, presages the supernatural dread of M.R. James' Edwardian ghost stories while embracing the best tropes of 19th century nautical fiction. However, Doyle's greatest impact on the genre was his influential additions to mummy mythology.
1: The earliest living or reanimated mummies, as presented in stories like The Jewel of the Seven Stars by Bram Stoker and Smith and the Pharaohs by H. Rider Haggard, were mostly female and portrayed as figures of romance and seduction. The Ring of Thoth continued this trend but added a key element we'll discuss later. Doyle's follow-up to The Ring of Thoth, the celebrated Lot 249, is recognized as
2: the first story to depict a mummy as a monster. Doyle's new vision of the mummy as an ancient, shambling evil quickly supplanted all others, becoming the default portrayal of mummies throughout the 20th century. This evolution was hastened by the success of Universal's 1932 film starring Boris Karloff. In retrospect, though, the film owes much to Doyle's landmark stories. When viewed together, The Romance of the Ring of Thoth and The Resurrected Menace of Lot No. 249, it's clear that Doyle's stories were the uncredited inspiration for the film. And now
0: let's listen to The Ring of Thought from Escape, first broadcast August 11th, 1948.
1: It's late at night and a chill has set in. You're alone and the only light you see is coming from an antique radio. Listen to the sounds coming from the speaker. Listen to the music and listen to the voices.
3: Escape. Escape tonight ancient Egypt.
4: The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations presents Escape, a new series of programs of which this, the sixth, is The Ring of Thought by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, produced and directed by William N. Robson. Wherever the English language is spoken, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is known for two things. His immortal character, Sherlock Holmes, and his unshakable belief in life beyond the grave. So great is the stature of Sherlock Holmes that Conan Doyle's earlier stories are all but forgotten. Stories like The Ring of Thought, which so clearly anticipates the author's later fascination with spiritualism. We invite you now to escape to ancient Egypt and The Ring of Thought. An adventure told in the words of John Van Smith, British Egyptologist.
5: I arrived in Paris on the 314 Express from Dieppe and went immediately to my hotel in the Rue de la Fite. My actions so far had worked out according to my planned schedule. I slept for exactly two hours got up and dressed, donned a greatcoat, walked down the Avenue de l'Opera, and entered a side door of the Louvre. Once inside, and amid surroundings entirely familiar to me, I made my way immediately to the chamber of Egyptian relics, or more specifically, to the cabinet in that chamber which contained the El Carbe collection of papyri. Drawing out the particular roll I wished, I placed it on a nearby table, sat down, began to study it, when I noticed one of the museum attendants who was polishing some brasswork across the room his face struck me as being curiously Egyptian on sudden impulse I decided to cross the room and speak to him approaching closer I was impressed at once by the appearance of his skin drawn tautly across temple and cheek it seemed as glazed and as shiny as varnished parchment and out of narrowed slits There glowed two green and vitreous eyes, misty with a dry shininess, eyes of a kind never seen in a human head before. I I beg your pardon. I need one of the papyri from the Memphis collection. Could you tell me where it is?
3: You'll find it in the last cabinet at the end of the room, monsieur.
5: Hmm, thank you. Uh, You're Egyptian, aren't you? No, monsieur. I... I am a Frenchman. But, uh, Oh, I thought perhaps If monsieur the...
3: will excuse me now, I have other work to do.
5: I went back to the table and took up the papyrus I had been studying before. But my former calmness in translating the intricate hieroglyphics was gone, and out of the depths of my mind welled a feeling of terrible familiarity. I concentrated more deeply on my studies pushing aside those thoughts conducive to mental turmoil and, at last, worn out by the inward struggle, I fell asleep. I awoke with a start, not remembering where I was. It was quite dark for a moment... Then gradually, my eyes focused on the glints of moonlight reflected from the glass tops of specimen tables, from the shiny varnish of the mummy cases. And I realized with a feeling of sudden dread that I was alone in the Egyptian room of the Museum of the Louvre, locked in for the night. and I saw at that moment, approaching through the moonlit halls, a dim yellow flame. Nearer and nearer it came until I could perceive above it, as though floating in the air, the eerie glistening face of the man I'd spoken to earlier. I shrank into the dark shadow of my corner, and he passed without seeing me, stopping before the mummy cases a few yards away. Scarcely daring to breathe, I watched him place the light on a table and begin feverishly to examine the tags on the specimens. In a moment he gave a cry of delight and, uh, drawing one of the mummies from its resting place, laid it on the table in the full glow of the lantern and set to work. He was unwinding the wrappings from the head of the corpse. A few turns revealed a tumbled cascade of black curls, a few more the snow-white brow, then the delicate nostrils, and at last the full, warm, passionate lips, the face of the most beautiful woman the world has ever seen. Ah, my
3: pauvre petite. So long it has been. So very long. You must forgive me, beloved.
5: I could hardly believe my eyes. The man was obviously in love with this mummy. After a while, he left the body, turning his attention to one of the glass cases filled with an assortment of rings. From a pocket of his garment he'd taken a small glass bottle containing some kind of liquid and he used this now to test the rings, rejecting them one after another. Then at last...
3: This is it. It's the one. At last I found it. The ring of thought.
5: In his excitement, he dropped the bottle and I gasped in surprise at the sudden sound. Who's there? Uh, I, I beg your pardon.
3: So it is you. No, do not move. Uh,
5: I, I didn't mean to spy on you. I, I fell asleep.
3: Who are you, monsieur?
5: I am John Vansittard Smith, a student of Egyptology.
3: No matter. You will observe this knife. Yes. Had I discovered you five minutes ago, monsieur, I should have slain you without a word. What? As it is now, I have found the ring. But I warn you not to interfere with me in any way.
5: Uh, I really haven't the slightest intention of it. After all, I'm only here by accident. Perhaps... I say, you shouldn't have unwrapped that mummy, you know. It's starting to deteriorate already.
3: Oh, my beloved.
5: Yes, before our eyes, the lovely face was crumbling, the hair falling away, the skin shriveling and cracking, the lips fading. The man hovered over the decaying body a moment, murmuring sorrowfully. And then he turned again.
3: No matter. That will not make the least difference in a little while. Of what importance is the dead shell so long as her spirit waits for me at the other side of the veil?
5: What are you talking about? What is it you're proposing to do? Tonight, monsieur,
3: I have ended a quest and broken at last the ancient curse. Nothing now can prevent my joining her.
5: Uh, Are you actually claiming that you... you knew her? She was
3: Atma, daughter of the governor of Abaris, and both she and I lived in the reign of Tutmosis, 3,500 years ago.
5: You're obviously mad. Perhaps,
3: but not in the way you think. There may be design in this, your coming here. It may be decreed that I should leave some account behind as a warning to other mortals as rash as myself. Very well, then. So be it. I am, as you surmised, an Egyptian. My name was Sasra. And my father had been the chief priest of Osiris in the great temple of Abaris, which stood in those days upon the bubastic branch of the Nile. I was brought up in the temple and was trained in all those mystic arts and sciences known to the priesthood. Of all the mysteries that I studied, none intrigued me more than the question of life and death. And even to this question, in time, I found an answer.
4: But for a man to live beyond his allotted span of years, Master Sastra, the gods have not so ordained it.
3: (laughs) Then perhaps they will have to revise their ordinances now that I have discovered their secret.
4: It is not well to jest. I tremble, for though I have labored in your service for a year... I knew not the goal of your endeavors. May Osiris forgive me.
3: Ah, what a pity you look upon it this way. For I'd thought that in return for your assistance, I should grant you, too, the gift of centuries of indestructible life. I would not have it, Master
4: Sostra. And I beg that you, too, forgo it.
3: Forgo it? I introduced the fluid into my veins one month ago.
4: Oh, no. Then you are lost, indeed.
3: Lost? (laughs) Do you call this being lost? Let's see now. My heart should be about here. Oh, that knife. No,
5: don't. Master, you... You've killed yourself.
3: Not at all. See? It bleeds a little. But in a while, the wound will close up. And that's all. You... It's... It's immortality. No. I shall not live forever. But for 5,000, perhaps 6,000 years, I shall be immune from all dangers of violence, poison, disease, starvation.
4: You, you cannot die?
3: Now, with this fluid in my veins, nothing, nothing in this world can end my life.
5: Sosra, Sosra, are you there? Someone calls. It's Parmes, the priest of Thoth. In here, my friend, enter. Oh, greetings, Sosra, master of sciences. And his worthy assistant.
4: If you will excuse me, masters. I go to make my peace with (laughs) ourselves.
5: What's
3: wrong with your helper, Sosra? The thought of a well-nigh eternal life has frightened him into gibbering
5: superstition. Then you still believe in the discovery? Believe in it? Parmes, my friend. Look. By the heavens, what a scar. It pierces the heart.
3: It was done only a moment ago with this knife. Hmm? See? I can put
5: it back in the wound. So. You... You suffered no ill effects. None whatever. And if I, if I turned the knife in the wound, that would do you no harm? You may try it.
3: I feel nothing. I walked last week in the snake pits by the river, was struck innumerable times. It caused no harm. By the great Anubis. Will you have it then? Out of all Egypt, I have chosen only you, my friend,
5: to share the gift but the choice is yours. I'd be a fool to refuse, Sosra. I'll have it. And now, what must I do? First, we must open a vein in
3: your wrist, like this. Then, we drip the elixir slowly into your bloodstream. Steady now. I,
5: I don't feel anything. There is no sensation. It is done. So simple? There is nothing more? That's all. And now done, it can never be changed. It seems incredible,
3: supernatural. It's no more than a chemical discovery, but with it, while all this about us passes away, you and I, Parmes, will live on for 50 centuries. Think of it, my friend, 5,000 years of life.
5: 5,000 years. Only the two of us. Listen, that noise. Some procession must be passing in the street. I have an idea what it may be. Come on over to the window.
3: She's being carried on the shoulders of slaves, Parmes. She must be some woman of rank. Her name is Atma. She's the daughter of the new governor. Her curtains are drawn back. Perhaps we'll have a look at her. Oh, Parmes. Mm-hmm. Is she not beautiful? She is the most desirable, the only utterly desirable woman I've ever seen in my life.
5: Yes, I saw her yesterday at the temple. Then you're most fortunate, my friend.
3: You've had 24 more hours to dream about her than I have had. I must know her, Parmes. I must make her love me. I'll send gifts. I'll call on her tomorrow. Oh, it has to be then. I couldn't wait any longer than tomorrow.
5: A visitor calls upon the beloved of the universe. He is Sosro, priest of the temple of Osiris.
6: Well, bid him approach.
3: Enter, Sosro. Oh, most beautiful of all Egypt, I cast myself at your feet.
6: That's a noble ambition. But wouldn't it be much better to sit here beside me and watch the fish in the fountain?
3: Much better.
6: You will all withdraw. Except you, my girl. Play something for us at a distance. Well, Sasra, for so I understand you're called. Am I to deem this an official visit by a master of the temple?
3: Oh, might my beloved. That is, no, it is not official.
6: Oh? Perhaps then you wish to see my father on personal business of your own. Oh, no,
3: no. I shall pay my respects to him at some other time.
6: Then could it be I you've come to see?
3: Yes, yes.
6: And since you've said the visit's not official, Your reason must be a personal one.
3: Oh, it is.
6: Well, what is it?
3: Atma, I have known women who are famed for their beauty throughout the valley of the Nile. But not one, not all of them, are so lovely as you.
6: How thoughtful of you to come here and tell me.
3: Atma, I've no wish to intrude my desires, my hopes, beyond such extent as you may wish to hear. Oh, I'm finding this very difficult.
6: (laughs) Oh, I've been told that you're a master of science, that you've unlocked the secrets of the universe, learned all the mysteries of nature itself.
3: Your informants have been most generous.
6: Yes, I'm inclined to think so. Why? Because you've discovered nothing at all about such a simple thing as a woman's heart. What do you mean? I come from Thebes, And the women of Thebes are warm-blooded, passionate, and we know what we want. Atma... I saw you first three days ago. Why do you think I told my bearers to carry me down that street beneath your window?
3: And so, miracle of all miracles, Atma loved me. Worshipping the very ground her feet had trod upon, I lived through those glorious weeks, and with it all, our love grew apace. But one thing bore heavily upon my mind, and I came to speak of it more often to my beloved as we sat and talked by the fountain in her garden.
6: Look, Sasra, See how the stars shine from the water.
3: Yes, Atma. More lovely even than their glow in the heavens.
6: Are they very old, the stars?
3: Very old, beloved. As old as time.
6: And they'll go on gleaming there. Long years after you and I are gone and forgotten.
3: Atma, my dearest. We've talked of this before, and I know it distresses you to think of it.
6: No, Sasra. Tonight everything is beautiful. We shall not talk of death.
3: Not of death, but of life. They're only counterparts of one another.
6: Oh, if we could only live together... Grow old together and die in the same instant.
3: But how much better to live and love 5,000 years? Will you not do it? Does so long a time seem too great for the love you feel for me?
6: Beloved, no. The time would pass in an instant. And the loss then be no easier born than now.
3: Then why draw back? Will you not take the elixir now, tonight?
6: I'm afraid, Sasra. We'll anger the gods.
3: We will outlive the gods. They
6: will have their revenge.
3: Whatever occurred, we'd be together.
6: Yes, I've thought of that. Were it not so, I'd not even consider doing it.
3: Then you'll do it. Atma, you'll do it.
6: I need more time, only a little more to assure myself. How much? Tonight, Sasra. Give me tonight.
3: Every hour you live without the elixir is another hazard. All right, then. Tonight and may Isis herself guard over you until the fluid courses in your veins. And so, on that accursed night, I went to my chambers and slept. And while I slept, the moon of Isis shone over the delta of the Nile, shone but to light as foul a scene as was ever done on Earth. Some hours had passed master away.
5: Sorcerer, master Sosro, Master awaken, Master, awaken mm-hmm. at once. You know, who is it? Oh, what a terrible oh. thing has transpired Let me turn up this the night.
3: You, you're one of Atma's slaves. Why do you come here?
5: Oh, Master, Master.
3: What has happened? What's the matter? Speak.
5: It is she, the light of the world.
3: Tell me what has happened to her.
5: Master, Master. Brigands came in the night. She... She is dead. You lie. You lie. No, oh, Sasra, the slave speaks the truth. Parmes, my friend. What foul joke's behind these words of his? It's not a joke. Atma is dead. You, slave, depart from us. Yes, masters. By your gracious leave, I depart.
3: Such a thing cannot be. Oh, of course. The two of you planned it together, sought to frighten me out of my wits. It's very amusing, really. But I was
5: terrified for a moment. Atma no longer lives. She was stabbed to death only a short while ago. No. Oh, no, no. She can't be dead. She is dead, Sorcerer, and for all eternity.
3: I must go to her. Something, surely something can be done.
5: I killed her.
3: What is it? What has happened?
5: I killed her. Oh, I struck her through the heart with this very knife. You. You, Parmes. Why? Because she loved you. Why? And because I loved her. You,
3: my friend.
5: She would not look at me. And for that, you would lose her to both of us forever? To both of us, Osra? I think not. By the living Osiris, give me that knife. That's it. Strike. (coughs) Uh, Again. (coughs) Here's the heart. Here. Strike. (coughs) Again and again, Osra. Wait. What foolishness. I cannot kill you. You're wrong, Osra. You have killed me. Those were grievous blows.
3: But the fluid, that cursed elixir of life, it runs in your veins
5: as well as mine. True. But in mine is also the antidote. You lie. There is no antidote. Yes, day and night. These many weeks I've worked and I found it. You couldn't
3: have. You... Is there more of it?
5: Yes, a very little But you'll never find it.
3: Where is it? Tell me where it is.
5: In the ring, Sosra. In the ring of Thoth. And you'll never find
3: it. I will. I will. I must.
5: Go on. Live. Live your 50 centuries. And every hour of them. Think. It was your hand that struck me down. With the same knife that took her from you think while i go to join her
3: oh no you're not dead you're not no 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 For months, I searched the papers, test tubes, and the chemical flasks in the chambers of the dead priest of Thoth. Searched and found nothing. I sifted the sands where he'd walked, questioned his slaves and servants, and learned nothing. Every moment of my life, my terrible and unwanted life, was devoted to an unceasing hunt for the Ring of Thoth. And all to no avail. And in time, a horde of barbarians overran the city of Abaris. And the sands of the desert buried forever the last of my hopes. And so began the deadly march of the centuries. How can you know how terrible a thing time is? You who've experienced only the narrow course between the cradle and the grave. I've floated down the whole stream of history. I have traveled in all lands, and I have dwelt with all nations. Every tongue is the same to me. I need not tell you how slowly the centuries drifted by. Centuries without end, years without number. And so, I came to be one day, a few weeks past, in San Francisco, where I came across a certain item in a newspaper. Among recent discoveries in Lower Egypt is an unopened mummy case containing, according to the inscription on the outside, the body of the daughter of the governor of Abaris in the days of Tutmosis, In the same burial crypt, dropped into a crevice between the stones, was found a
4: large platinum ring of singular design. Both specimens have been sent for examination
1: to the Louvre in Paris.
5: So, I presume you came here to Paris, obtained this position of attendant in the Louvre with the idea... Only yesterday, Monsieur Smith...
3: As you may imagine, I had little difficulty in convincing the director of my knowledge of Egyptian relics.
5: The ring, then? The one I saw you remove from the case is the Ring of Thoth? Without question. You've discovered how the ring must be used? The secret is obvious.
3: See? The stone is hollow, and drops of liquid move within it.
5: Have you considered the possibility that this uh, antidote may not perform the function which has been claimed for it?
3: It will, monsieur. And there'll be no need of a knife to strike me down. My death was due in a time long past. And only this damnable fluid that runs through my veins supports the weight of my years. I delay no longer. I go to join her where she waits for me, in death.
5: No! Don't! Oh. Too late. I've
3: broken the gem. I've taken the antidote.
5: I stood and watched him with a terrible fascination, but without pity and without compassion. He turned away from me and reeled toward the mummy he'd left on the table across the room. But even as he turned, the parchment skin of his face cracked and shredded, discolored lips shriveled away from the yellow teeth, the vitreous eyes withered into nubs of formless plasm, and the full weight of his 3,500 years descended on him in an instant. I left that room of death, and walked over the marble floors toward the exit, my footsteps echoing through the empty halls, even as they had echoed for so long in the corridors of time. And I wondered as I walked, if Sosra knew now what I knew, that the antidote in the ring of Thoth can bring death to the body, but not to the soul. And I wondered in what cloak of flesh his spirit now dwelt, just as I, Parmes, priest of Thoth, had for the last 40 years of my 3500 dwelt in the body of John Vansittart Smith.
6: So little and so red.
3: Well, now, he's only two days old. But
6: he doesn't look a bit like either his father or me.
3: Give him time, my dear. All babies look pretty much alike
1: when they're first born.
6: Well, I don't know. It, his eyes or, It's silly, of course, but he looks like an Egyptian.
4: Produced and directed by William N. Robeson, The Ring of Thoth by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was adapted for radio by Les Crutchfield with Jack Webb as Sorcerer, Thomas Freebairn Smith as Van Siddart Smith, and Joan Banks as Atma. The special musical score was conceived and conducted by Cy Feuer. Escape is presented by the Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations each week at this time. Next week, we invite you to escape to a raft in the South Pacific with John Russell in his unforgettable story of human frailty, The Fourth Man. And so good night until next week at this time, when again it will be time to escape. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
0: That was the Ring of Thoth from Escape here on the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society podcast. Once again, I'm Eric. I'm Tim. And I'm Joshua. And that was a listener request coming to us from Paul, who uh, asked us to do the Ring of Thoth. We've also done another one of his SOS not too long ago. So this is all new to me. The Mummy stuff from Doyle. I've known of it, but I've never really given it any read, of course. I don't read. Uh, But I have not listened (laughs) to any of it or known much about any of it. I am a huge fan of Boris Karloff's 1933 movie, The Mummy. But you are a huge Doyle aficionado, Mm -hmm. Joshua. So tell us what we just listened to. Was it good?
2: (laughs) Good. That's going to be a complicated discussion. But the one thing I wanted to mention that I did not include in the intro because I wanted people who weren't familiar uh, with his presence in this script to be surprised by it the way I was when I first listened to this. And that is Jack Webb performing in a way I had never heard him perform before. And in my first listen, I totally did not recognize him until they announced him at the end as Sosra. That was Jack Webb? And as soon as you hear that it's Jack Webb and go back and listen, it's obviously Jack Webb, but just performing in a way that you're just not used to, that ancient whisper. And even uh, when it travels back in time and his voice slowly regrades to a young voice, he's speaking in such a formal tone and with such emotion. I mean, the experience I have with Jack Webb is either he is the no-nonsense, matter-of-fact joe friday or he is the just mean wise cracking pat novak yeah it's just I, so fun yeah. to hear him in a, a piece of science fiction horror like this
0: i want to listen yeah, I right almost now
2: argued with the credits of, no that is not jack webb
0: <laughs> i want to listen right now because i didn't know that the
2: facts ma'am <laughs> just the facts right <laughs>
0: I got to start listening to the last 14 seconds of of these uh,
2: things. I just go. It does tend to bite you in the ass when you don't.
0: Well, there have been plenty of podcasts where I've gone, and it's over. And you guys have been like, you didn't hear the last 20 seconds.
2: SOS was the classic example. it was. Paul's other recommendations. Yeah,
0: yep. But they start wrapping up don't forget to buy yeast. And they start saying stuff, and I'm like, yep.
2: And you're like, off to the store to buy yeast. (laughs) Right. you're like, I forgot yeast. It's like, there's only two minutes left in the game. Let's go get our car, (laughs) get out of the parking lot. (laughs) Well, the other reason I wanted to bring this to the podcast is that we have discussed the idea of doing a mummy performance for our live shows where we would do something like The Ring of Thoth or our own dramatization of lot number 249, which is an excellent story as well. So I wanted to get this in front of you guys and find out if I was going to be told, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> I hate this script, you idiot. So that's part of it as well.
1: These kinds of stories are very fun in the contrast of a love story, which is very mundane, sort of, but very human everything that anyone mm-hmm. can sympathize with. And the huge scope of all of time Um and pairing those two ideas together Right. of this huge mystic world, all these supernatural things, these lands beyond,
0: and just a love story. Uh, the rare ability to have empathy for the monster that is not just... Tearing people limb from limb and, you it's know, not Fra-
1: just tearing people. like, oh, it's more
0: than just limb tearing. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, you have that for Frankenstein, for sure. You don't have that with Dracula. There's no reason to feel you don't learn about his childhood. And, and how he was beaten or anything, you know? Um, you don't, I think Lon Chaney's werewolf, you absolutely empathize with him because he's, he's very distraught yeah, he's helpless, over, yeah. uh, over that. But I think that the idea that these monsters are monsters and then finding out they're not really monsters, they're tortured. Mm-hmm. And he's tortured by the love that he has for this woman and that's all he wants. And that's great. Uh, and I like that part of The Mummy, What I don't like is that being the only part of the story where we're just talking about that part of it. I like it in addition to tearing, limb limb tearing. tearing, (laughs) We need some limb tearing and some love scenes and some motivation and some feeling, some empathy for the monster. So this story... I can't wait to listen to uh, Mummy Number 243 or whatever it
2: was,
0: (laughs) where it is obviously more of the monster mummy, which, of course, is my favorite part. But the movie does such a beautiful job of of touching on it and making you feel something and then moving on to the horror part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for me, listening to this is historically significant. Like, aha, I see where the movie got these ideas. I see what's going on. And that's all it was. So I wasn't 100% like, oh,
2: this is great. Yeah. You wanted a mummy car chase.
0: absolutely needed some mummy tearing. The novel, he says to the guy, I'm going to uh, die and be with her. And then he reads in the paper a few days later that he is found in the arms of the mummy dead.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes. In here. It's a different ending. Les Crutchfield invented a escape style twist. Yes.
0: And it saved it for me. I, I like this ending that the priest is still alive after all these years because your soul doesn't die, just your body dies. So, ha, ha you have to be alive forever.
2: It's a dramatically different interpretation of the story. Because yes. Conan Doyle's is a love story with a happy ending. They yes. are together forever. Mm-hmm. This one is you live for thousands of years just to be reincarnated, yes. to start over as an infant and you'll probably be killed by a jackdaw. (laughs) So call back to last week's episode.
1: (laughs) That ending, I was literally like, what? This was almost that archetypical perfect, I'm listening, I'm enjoying, I'm appreciating, and the ending completely pulled the rug out for me in a way that I loved, Mm -hmm. which I appreciate that is not what the original source material was going for, but as a twist, like, that was
2: awesome. Yeah, I'm not criticizing it as a twist i just think it's fascinating to me how that one change can completely give us a different story in some ways yeah
0: don't get me wrong i didn't read it i read the synopsis on wikipedia so don't start going i was never fooled (laughs) good (laughs) but bravo escape way to make something much more interesting of an ending for me i love that ending here's my question what did you think of the performance of... Parmese? Parmese, yeah. The actor who played Parmese.
2: I mean, it wasn't stellar, but this is that period right. both in radio and later in TV where anything that is a long time ago, you speak in this formal voice right. with no contractions. It's like everyone is data from Star Trek. Yes. Um, and the same with faraway future people. They yes. also speak like this. And I felt it was in that tradition.
1: I didn't track which actor it was, but there was one actor in the
2: old time voice that like,
1: the exit was still kind of there.
2: <laughs> I don't think it was Parmes because Parmes no, was yes. just like, he should be advertising Ovaltine. Right. You know, but only in a very formal, high diction voice.
0: So I hated Parmes the actor's portrayal of him, the whole way through until we got the twist. Mm-hmm. Because I was like, you're not really reacting to any of this at all. There's no reaction. Yeah, the guy's uh with that mummy over there. Hey, you're looking for a ring, are you? And then when you find out it's because he's been alive thirty five hundred years and he's actually oh. I went,
1: Oh. Yeah. On a second <laughs> listen through his reactions knowing who he is and knowing yes. who,
2: I, there's a lot of nuance there. But also Parmes is the same way. Yes. In Egypt. He's yes has very little reactions he's just like oh you discovered immortality interesting yes oh you're going to give it to me okay (laughs) yeah exactly Uh, and and you think it's really wooden until you realize he is hiding all his emotions and then when he reveals i killed her Mm -hmm. and it's a shocking moment i did not see it coming.
1: you've killed me
2: (laughs) yeah there's this fun moment earlier sosra has stabbed himself in the chest. And he great sound effect and <laughs> and he asks Parmes, "Go ahead, twist it." So I just thought that was this great foreshadowing of Parmes twisting the knife literally and then we figuratively in his death get him twisting the knife by taunting him with the fact that there is a little bit of this antidote and it exists in a ring i'm even going to tell you it's in the ring but you're never going to find it so we have this bookend knife twisting that i think is brilliant
0: speaking of the knife the most grotesque sound effect made me gag. I could not listen to the knife going in and being twisted. I had to turn it down. I stood up and shook my hands and walked around the room. That was really disturbing to listen to that. I didn't like it at all. And then I had to listen to it a second time, because we do. And then when it came to that, I'm like, oh, nope. And I turned it down until it was done. (laughs) I hated it, which is a great sign that it was awesome, because, ooh gross. I'm still... Coming out of my skin, mm. thinking about it. Hated it. But and
1: the details of, of like, oh, I, I stabbed myself in the chest here. Look, it, it fits right back in. You can just slide it right back <laughs> <laughs>
0: the- And then the twisting.
1: Casualness and
2: the...
0: Mm-hmm. And then the noise that it made. And but, the noise that
2: it I wonder what they were using because it was gross. The sound effects were very simple but effective. Another example of that was when John, the narrator, is describing Sosura cutting the bandages off of yeah. the mummy. That sound effect is so evocative and perfect. It is the right texture. It has the right give as it's being cut. That just that sound effect makes you just imagine everything about what's happening. And it's just mm. one. It's not this detailed, textured right. uh, soundscape. It's some sound guy picked the exact right sound effect for cutting mummy bandages. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it was. Right. Maybe they broke into a museum and said, let's cut open a mummy. There
0: wasn't a lot of laws back then about archaeology and stuff. We borrow the mummy. Got to... It's a mummy cutting.
2: There's a, another nice bit of overlapping narration and scene when John is describing um, the female mummy disintegrating after describing how perfect and beautiful she is. And while he's describing her turning to dust, we just hear saucer going, Oh yeah. no, and just making these kind of pleads mm. and this these sad sounds, and I thought that was really nice. Speaking of a Grizzly, um which you weren't just now, but um
1: <laughs> the description of of him when the aid catches him with him and his eyes turning to these dry protoplasmic
2: Oh
3: gah,
2: Yeah. <laughs> which we don't get in Doyle's original story, uh, because he's found intact, as Eric said, you know, clinging to the mummy.
0: Yeah, in the arms of the mummy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and dies with her, finally, and finds everlasting peace. Yeah. But in this one?
2: No. Baby. Baby. (laughs) He's going to be pooping his pants. (laughs) Which begs the question,
0: because he says, you know who you are, you're just in this body. And he knows who he is for 3,500 years, just for 40 years, I've been John, right? And... When that John's done, I'll be somebody else. That's the nightmare of this. At what point do you know that? What I'm asking is, are you a baby going, oh, here I am, I'm a baby? Yeah. Are you in your head going, ah, oh, I'm already 100% conscious of who I am <laughs> and what's going on, and now I just got to be this baby. Don't speak too soon. Uh, what is it, about a year I talk? Like, you got <laughs> to be very careful about knowing things. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and when uh, the mother says, there's something about him that looks Egyptian, I was like, oh, I hope the mailman is an Egyptian right? <laughs> the meter man just for peace at your household. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> that sudden
1: twist there of like, and the story is over. And now well, let's talk about how babies look. That's when you think, like, is this next week's episode that I skip it? Yeah.
0: The, I had that moment too. I had to go back and go, wait, who is this woman? What's going on? Oh, I see.
2: Arguably, it didn't need that second button. Yeah. However, the detail of that is nice. It's not necessarily naturalistic. I can't see a, a mother who's just given birth complaining about what her baby looks like. <laughs> uh, however, it really makes you realize, oh, no, he is n- 100% not going to be with his love.
0: Jesus. Plus this also called out that BS that I, I get so tired of of newborn babies and people saying it looks like you, or it looks like him. No, it doesn't. It doesn't look like either of you yet. It just doesn't. It looks like a baby. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. it looks like, like a pile
0: bologna. of baloney. A pile <laughs> of. I hate that so much. <gasps> She's got your eyes. No, it's a pile yeah. of
2: flesh. Yeah, looks all like an babies old... look like ancient Egyptians. Right. So let's be honest. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they all look like a pagoda. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Um it is interesting though, um, how the initial description of Sosera as this aged, almost mummified human being really echoes the makeup of Boris Karloff. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And it's not that much different in the Escape episode than it is in the story. So another cue that these were really influential. Right. And I love The Mummy, the movie, and I love the idea that he's trying to bring his love back to life. But there's something poignant about the story where his only goal is to finally to die, die and rest in peace with her. Yep. Uh,
0: there's something more uh, ominous and wrong about trying to bring someone to life to be with them. There's something more poetic and beautiful, I guess, about mm-hmm. wanting to die to be with them. But uh, you better believe... <laughs>
1: well, that's also I want to die to be with you so I can spend eternity telling you I told you <laughs> take the thing drink the thing so you can live forever
0: 3500 years later <laughs> what was it like 48 hours you couldn't have done this 48 hours <laughs> earlier what was her excuse I don't remember and I didn't quite get that why didn't she not want to do it yet
2: well I think living for thousands and thousands of years eh. That seems a little terrifying too, because you don't know a, what's going to so happen. Big commitment. You, if you put
0: a vial on the table right now and said "live forever," you wouldn't get forever out of your mouth before <laughs> I drank it. I want to be the Highlander. <laughs> <laughs>
2: there can be only one. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't hesitate. I don't know what you're doing. Live forever, yeah. But it's
2: not immortality. We're calling it immortality, but they are very specific in the episode that it's for five thousand years. Close I mean, but from our point of view, yeah, that's that's a long friggin' time. Yeah. We are gonna get bored. That would be demoralizing in how little I could get done in five thousand years. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> we would make it through every single old-time radio episode. <laughs> we get through everyone. Hey everybody! Today, we're going to be discussing
2: Cinnamon Bear.
6: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's all we have left. <laughs> Each episode of the podcast is 24 hours long. <laughs> Do we want to go to the vote? Sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Let's, uh, who wants to start? Any volunteers?
2: I thoroughly enjoyed this. And it's interesting. I think I thoroughly enjoyed it mostly for historical reasons. And I think I want to take a moment to kind of reclaim historical reasons as not a consolation prize. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Particularly in the case of this production, because it's an interesting thing, and we didn't talk about it yet, but Escape's own introduction at the top of the show basically indicates that Les Crutchfield and the director, William Robeson, Also, at the time it was produced, we're looking at this story through the lens of its historical significance, because they give that Mm -hmm. introduction about Sherlock Holmes and how this story has been forgotten and how it foreshadows his belief in spiritualism. And so ironically, even though I'm saying it's mainly of historical interest... The fact that it was actually presented as historical interest then, and is still of historical interest now, means it stands the test of time. (laughs) Gotcha on the technicality. But I I thought that was interesting. I don't think I've heard an introduction like that before from Escape. But it's also interesting for historical reasons that weren't known at the time of its production. For example, like we said, hearing Jack Webb perform something so far from what we now know Jack Webb for performing. Um, There's also the historical context of this is early days of escape. And this is very unlike other episodes of escape. There are a number of other episodes in this first run of escape that are like this, that are real outliers. They have not yet decided on their format. I'm thinking of things like Diamond as Big as the Ritz, which is comedy satire. Their first story is... uh, I can't remember the name, but it's really weird. It's an adaptation of a short British film. Not at all like uh, anything else from Escape. Even, and I love it, Evening Primrose, which I think was episode four, is very much outside what will become the normal Escape format. So for that reason, it's of historical interest. And already we are seeing just these elements of production value that escape is going to be known for the, the sound effects we mentioned um, just a little attention to detail the twist at the end so i thoroughly enjoyed it i it is far from a classic of escape but right. i like it anyway
0: yeah there's nothing more grotesque than that knife going into that guy Ugh. would i be okay and be let off the hook if i just said what joshua just said and move on because that's exactly it historically extremely significant really interesting when you're a fan of the movie the mummy the ending made please forgive me the ending made the slog through (laughs) the slowness of it and all of that and love story much more worth the wait and Mm -hmm. i loved the twist at the end and i loved all that but you take away the historical significance, would I love it? No, I would say it was okay. Uh, but I really love knowing this story. It's historically it, beautiful. It's so
2: funny, because when I was listening to this, I went, oh, that added twist is for Eric's from 1947. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which was Eric. Right. They should have said in the middle,
0: don't fall asleep, it's coming. Don't turn Hang on. Hang on, Eric. <laughs> Something fun's going to happen. They're uh, going to get to the castle. <laughs> It was one of those things where I admire the
1: script, the performance, all the production elements, uh, and the only thing that is that makes me uh, not just super. This was awesome. Was exactly both things you're talking about of the later mythology of the mummy. I, I crave that when we have a mummy right. story and escape. Of I crave certain things with an escape story um, yes. that just aren't there yet. And it's not a failure on this story or this production because it wasn't there yet either for an escape episode or for a mummy story. But I, I felt their absence.
0: It's interesting you say that when this was sent, here's our next podcast recording. It's like, sweet escape, yeah. And and I was disappointed. I think because it's not very escapy, mm-hmm. <laughs> so or very mummy or very yeah. mummy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, oh, the mummy in ancient Egypt, and oh yeah, bring it on. So you're still in love, are you?
2: <laughs> <laughs> I am going to adapt lot number two forty nine, and you're going to love it.
0: I bet a lot of limb tearing. I'll add just some <laughs> half an hour, of
2: rip, <laughs> rip. <laughs> and just knife twisting, just nonstop knife twisting. There will never be the sound that. of arms hitting the floor. I can live with anything, but
0: that knife in the chest. Oh my god! Ugh. All right, Tim, tell him stuff.
1: Go visit ghoulishdelights.com, home of this podcast. We have plenty of episodes there. Uh, You can listen to all sorts of things. Um, You can comment on episodes. You can vote in polls. Let us know what you think of these episodes. You can send us messages. You can request episodes that we add to our list of podcast listener library uh, installments. That's not phrased well. Um, (laughs) You can also link to our social media pages. You can uh, link to our Threadless store and buy swag. Morals swag. Everyone loves swag. Uh, And you can also
2: link to our Patreon page. Yes. Go to patreon.com slash themorals and support this podcast. I usually do a laundry list of... Exciting awards and uh, benefits that we offer to patrons, but I'm gonna I'm gonna zero in and focus on just one. I don't even know which one I'm gonna do until right now. <laughs> uh, let me talk about happy hours because I enjoy those so much, and that is something we offer to Patreon members at every level. Once a month, we just all get together on Zoom. And we talk about something related to old-time radio. One of our most recent ones was a discussion of the Alfred Hitchcock silent film The Lodger in contrast to the radio adaptation. So we get to nerd out together, make dumb jokes, awkwardly speak over one another on Zoom. (laughs) All the great things. So if you would like to literally hang out with us and other old-time radio nerds, become a Patreon
0: our uh, threadless page just realized uh, here's an item we need to offer a ring of thought we need to sell a ring of thought but where the jewel goes you just put a piece of trick cereal (laughs) (laughs) so every day you can be like that's it I've had it and you can (laughs) eat it
2: and then turn to dust and then turn to dust
0: Hey, don't forget that you can see us performing live every month. We perform live. You can come see us in the Twin Cities area. That's where we're located. We do adaptations of classic radio shows and sometimes not so classic and a lot of our own original radio drama work as well. We perform them live on stage, four of us doing all the voices and all of the sound effects. You can go to ghoulishdelights.com or com and buy tickets. Oh, wait, you're not here or it's too far away. Or you're busy that night. Guess what? You can buy a ticket to watch us live.
2: Gotcha. Ah, <laughs> uh, You don't
0: have an excuse anymore because quarantine, we learned how technology works. <laughs> so we can live stream it and you can sit in your home and watch a beautiful live stream. Actually, uh, mm-hmm. our tech is does a great job and it's not wonky, as my wife likes to say. Ah, it's all wonky. It's not wonky. <laughs> it's great. And if you can't make it that night, you don't even have to watch it live. You can watch it later. So go buy your tickets. Come see us live one way or the other. I don't care where you are.
2: Yeah, do it right now. I'm actually mad at you. Come on. (laughs) Buy a ticket.
0: If you don't, I'm going to eat this tricks out of this ring.
2: (laughs) This is weirdly specific, Eric.
0: (laughs) You've got so much to live for 5,000 years for. (laughs) All right,
1: what's coming up next? Up next is my selection. We'll be listening to an episode of Chillers from BBC entitled Who Goes There? Until then.
3: Look out! I
1: delay no longer. I go to join
3: her
2: where she waits for me. So you're still in love, are you?